you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be finishing off our series here today. Uh, we're going to be finishing off a study in Hebrews, then in a couple of weeks we're going to be jumping into the book of Colossians. And so as we, as we finish up the book of Hebrews, what has been the major theme that we have been discussing about Jesus? Jesus is the greatest of all time. In other words, Jesus is the greatest. And, and as we've been working through Hebrews, we've been looking at all these different descriptions and attributes of characteristics of who Jesus is and why He is the greatest. And we've been looking at the personhood of Jesus and who He is. And then there's been a shift in the last couple chapters of Hebrews as we've been studying this book. If this is who Jesus is and this is how great He is, this is what it means to live for Him. And this is what it means to live out the implication of who Jesus is. And so as we enter the final chapter of Hebrews 13, there's going to be all these last-minute descriptions of this is now how you're supposed to live because of who Jesus is. And it's almost like as the book comes to an end, it's almost like a preacher running out of time in a sermon where he just throws everything in at the end, right? And so this is going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant a little bit, but that's okay. There's a lot to process in Hebrews chapter 13. But before I, I, I jump to the text, I want to bring up this, this concept of following Jesus for us. Because as we've been studying Hebrews, we've been noticing that the, the biggest temptation for the Israelites as Christ has come as the Messiah, what's been their biggest temptation? To fall back into sin, but specifically their former religion? Judaism, right? And they, they began to say, okay, well, we understand that Jesus is God, but what about all these other traditions? What about all these regulations? What about all these rituals? How do they fit into the plans and purpose of God? And so Hebrews has been built, really emphasizing Jesus as greater than all these ritualistic traditions and all these things and really emphasize the person of who He is and now how we're supposed to live for Him. And so I think we don't really fall under that temptation of falling back to Judaism. None of us probably have a Jewish background in this room. But I'd say we do have issues with following Jesus, don't we? Who here struggles following the, the path of Jesus? If you're a non-Christian here this morning, don't worry. Us Christians struggle in this path as well. And I think that the biggest struggle we really have as Christians is... is Something that's summarized by a guy named John Orberg. He's a pastor in California. He was mentored by one of my favorite philosophical, uh, philosophical theologians, a guy named Dallas Willard. And this is what John Orberg, he says. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we would renounce our faith. There is a danger to that with some people, but for the majority of us as Christians, that's not the great danger. The great danger is will we, we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a what? A mediocre version of it. We will, at, we will just skim out lives instead of actually living them. And I think this is a key thing for us to realize because 
for, for many of us, we're not at this point of apostasy as we were talking about a few chapters back in Hebrews where I just, I'm tempted to renounce my faith and completely give up on Jesus. The, the problem that the majority of us face is, oh, I'm a Christian, but it doesn't actually transform us at all. It doesn't change the way we live. It's not our first and foremost thought of how we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to be. And so the, the, major, the, the major struggle we actually face is we can become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied with everything around us that we truly forget what it actually means to follow Jesus. And so Hebrews 13 is going to bring us back into this massive summary of if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to take all these things into account. You can't neglect them. You can't live for them. And as we, we think about Jesus being the greatest of all time, and as I said here, Jesus is the greatest to live for, a verse that really summarizes this for me in my life is, comes from uh, Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus says this, and he says, Come to me. There's an invitation. All who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you Sabbath, a wholeness, a restoration. And he says, Take my yoke upon you. Now, who knows what a yoke is? What was a yoke? Yeah, team up two animals, but it would be sort of this weight upon an oxen or a bull, right? And what would they do? Yeah, made with wood, but it would carry the weight. It would carry the load, right? But was Jesus a farmer? So what type of yoke is he talking about? Well, this is something that often Jewish rabbis, when they would speak of their yoke, it was how they would apply the Old Testament law. It was how they would imply and instruct how to live out the ways of God. And, and so Jesus is really saying when he says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, take my teachings, take my guidance, take my wisdom of how this is to live life. And he says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, here's the beautiful thing that Jesus says. Now, all these different rabbis had yokes, they had teachings, they had ways of teaching people how to live life. But Jesus says, my way of teaching how to live life is what? Is easy. And my burden is light. In other words, Jesus provides this beautiful freedom. He provides this, this beautiful, so to say, ease of life an easy understanding of how to deal with this world. Not that life is necessarily easy, but this is how Jesus defines what it means to live. And so I want to walk through Hebrews chapter 13 in light of this Matthew 11 chapter and really look at well, at this last chapter of Hebrews 13, how does it tell us how good it is to follow Jesus? Why is Jesus the greatest to live for. And so let's start working through this chapter together. First of all, the first three verses. The first three, three things we learn is that Jesus is the greatest to live for because He actually teaches us how to love. 
Love is such a, a prominent theme in our culture, and yet we have no definition of it. And this is how Jesus teaches us how to love. Chapter 13, Hebrews. If you have your Bible, you can open up there. If you have an app on your phone, you can open it there. This is what it says. He says, let brotherly love continue. So what's he saying there? What does it mean to be a brotherhood, so to say? It means you're part of a family. And so he's saying, first of all, remind yourself that to love one another as the church is to recognize that you are family, that you care for each other, that you look after each other. And he says, let brotherly love continue. If you want to follow Jesus, love better be at the forefront of your life. Then he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, what is hospitality? We often think hospitality is we put out a nice meal, a fancy meal, we invite some friends over, we host them, we have a nice little party, and that's being hospitable. But what is the biblical definition of hospitality? It's inviting the stranger. So think about this. When's the last time you invited someone over to your house that had been there for the first time? When's the last time you invited someone over to your house that you uh, just met the week before? When's the last time that you've welcomed someone that you, you didn't know and introduced them to the gospel or talked about Jesus? It says, don't neglect to show hospitality. And so the first concept is you better be very loving to the church and the family of God. The second is, you better show hospitality and show love to people you don't even know. And what's wild about this in Jesus' way that he teaches is Jesus doesn't just say, show love to strangers. Jesus goes as far as to say, show love to who? Your enemies even, right? The depth of love there. Now, here's a weird thing that he says. He says, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, this passage is like, okay, does that mean that every time we're going through life, is there all these mysterious angels around us that we have to take into account? And if, if someone sort of gives us a $10 bill out of generosity and then they disappear all of a sudden, does that mean they were an angel? Probably not, right? But what's he's talking about? These were Jewish people. And there's four major stories in the Old Testament where people have shown hospitality, and guess what those people ended up being? There's two stories in Genesis, there's two stories in Judges of people actually entertaining angels without even knowing it. Now, the thing is, in the Old Testament, they actually knew that they were doing it at the end of the day, but I'm saying that just so we don't think this passage is teaching us to be looking for angels everywhere in our lives, but realize the importance of that. Then the third thing he says to love is he says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, when he's talking about prison, what's he talking about? He's, he's not just speaking generically with prison ministry. Um, I did prison ministry for a number of years and I absolutely loved it. I love serving in prisons. I love interacting with the inmates, explaining the gospel, sharing my testimony to them, hearing their stories. Um, but this isn't just a plea for prison ministry. Who would have been in prison as he's writing this letter? Other people in the church, right? They would have been in prison for their faith. And so he's saying, well, when other people in the church are struggling, 
When other people have been taken out of the fellowship, so to say, he says, don't just leave them to suffer on their own. Our responsibility as the church is to go and meet them and meet their needs and love them. And he says, remember those who are in prison as though what? As though you are in prison with them. In other words, associate in their suffering, associate in their hardship, associate in their need. And so here's the first major beautiful thing that Jesus gives us as he teaches us how to love. He says, first of all, love the church, love the family, be committed. Then he says, love strangers, love those who are different than you, love those who are outside of your friend circle groups, love those who you wouldn't normally associate with. And then he says, thirdly, remember those who are suffering, remember those who are in need, remember those who are going through hardship this beautiful thing of Jesus teaching us how to love. And the second thing of Jesus showing us the greatest thing to live for, he says, we need to live with contentment. And this is what verses 4 to 6 say. He says, let marriage be held in honor among you, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, he says, keep your life free from money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so he brings up three major issues in our culture, right? He brings up sex. He brings up money. And he brings up power. Are those not the major idols of our culture today? Are those not the major things that we think will bring us contentment? And yet, here's, here's when we think about this. When, when we think of, of money and sex and power, and we as a culture especially, and we even as church at times can be tempted to this, why do we worship these things so much? Why do we give them such influential power in our life? Why do we worship them as idols in many ways? It's really because we ascribe to them much like God-like powers. We, we look at things like sex and money and power as being able to give us what only God can truly give us. And so we, we look at something like money or power and sex and we say, well, well this is what's going to give me security. This is what's going to give me comfort. This is what's going to give me pleasure. This is what's going to give me safety. If I just have enough money, then I'll truly be content and secure in life. If I just have, have sex enough or have enough partners, then I'll finally find the pleasure I'm longing for. If I, if I just have enough power and control over my life, I won't feel like everything's out of order. I'll feel like I'll finally be stable and secure. And yet, all of those things, when we pursue them, do they actually fulfill what we long them to? Anyone want to testify here? Do they? No, not at all. And so we, we look to these things, and so the, the warning it says, if, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then following any of these paths will just lead you away from Him. And the only way that you can find the true path of Jesus is when you refuse to be lured by these things. And when we actually trust who God is and who He is and what He said He will do, 
that will actually accomplish something beyond that. And so that's why he reminds us. He reminds us that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Which means that we can declare this beautiful statement. The Lord is my what? My helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. In other words, no matter what circumstances, if we have no money, if we have no power, if we have nothing, we still have Christ. I remember reading C.S. Lewis, one of the, the most profound quotes that I ever read from him. As he says, the man that has God and everything and the man that has God and nothing actually have the same. <laughs> I don't know if that's a perfect quote, but that's what I remember. In other words, if you have God, you can find the security and contentment and peace and joy and satisfaction that you think all these other things will give you, but they won't. And so Jesus gives us beautiful contentment when we choose to follow him. The passage goes on to, to tell us that the goodness of Jesus and salvation of Jesus doesn't change. And so let's read this next section, uh, verses 7 to 16. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Now that's a key language, right? The way of life. This is following Jesus. Jesus is the way. And imitate their faith. Then verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Now this is a little Jewish context that I'll explain in a minute why he's talking about food, which have not benefited those devoted to him, to them. We have an altar from which those who have served the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of these animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, a lot more Jewish understanding there that i got to explain in a little bit, but let's, let's first of all look at this first concept in verse 8 here, this, this beautiful reality that Jesus does not change, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and that gives us this greatest hope and security that we could ever imagine because when we look about our lives, it's absolutely constant change. Like, what are the things that are constantly changing in our life? Pardon? Yeah, the cost of groceries, yeah. Inflation, yeah. So if you put your hope in money and now we have inflation, all your hope is lost, right? <laughs> yeah, our health is constantly changing, especially as we age. What are some other things that are changing? 
Ja. Ja, de heating bill. Ja, 100%. Ja, friends, relationships change. I mean, people are constantly changing, right? Anyone who's married here can testify, is your spouse the same as they were the day you got married? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess you guys are pretty recent, so maybe Tim and Jody. <laughs> yeah. But things are constantly changing, which means that if, if our security is based on things that are stable, all our experience in this life will always let us down. And the beauty of Jesus is that He will never change. See, the only changes thing about this life is that everything is going to change, and yet when we look at who God is and what He has done and the promises that He's made, we can have this deep assurance that He won't change. And this is pretty hopeful for us because what it reminds us then is that we now have this depth of security in our relationship with Jesus and following Him. That we don't have to live with all this uncertainty about what the future is going to hold, about what challenges we're going to face, because Jesus doesn't change. His goodness and His salvation is always there for us. And so He, he begins with this premise And then we read on and he gets a little into the Jewish culture and language that we don't really understand fully, but why is he talking about all this food and stuff? What's going on with the food? What's going on with the altar? What's going on with the camp? Well, this is really just a way to describe some of the food laws that were under the old Mosaic law covenant. And so we hear this food law, we hear about the altar, we hear about the gate, And the massive thing he is saying is the goodness of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus is secure, so don't go back to what you were experiencing before. Don't go back just because of challenges and because you're facing hardship and persecution and even imprisonment. Don't go back because God is the same as he was when you turned to faith in him. And so this is the language that he's talking about is he's saying, you know what, there's all these food laws that were taking place. And in the Mosaic economy, only the priests in that culture could enter the altar and even them weren't even allowed to eat the atonement offering. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that those offerings, the sacrifice of Jesus, so to say, on the cross was actually outside of the holy city. It was outside of the tent. In other words, he's saying that Jesus went outside of the camp of Jerusalem to be crucified and bear our cross. And now the the drink and food that we partake in is not under the old sacrificial system, but the food and drink we partake in as Christians, we call what today? Communion, the Lord's table, where we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, the unchanging sacrifice. And so these Hebrew Christians are being tempted to shrink back to Jerusalem and their culture and their rituals when they were ready to go back to the old covenant. But what Jesus is is reminding them and Hebrews is reminding them is, no, nothing's changed with the new covenant. It's secure in who Christ is. And even though you're going through all this hard time, remember of what God has promised to us in the eternal lasting city. And so he says 
don't be tempted to go back. Now, how would this fit in our life? Maybe something similar for us could be, for many of us, we, we came to faith maybe later on in life. We began our journey of following Jesus later on in life. And there might be times and places and temptations where you're starting to think, oh, is the way of Jesus actually worth it? Is following Jesus actually worth it? Or can I go back to these activities and these people and these things? I remember having fun and enjoying these things. Why can't I go back to them? And it's the same way for us today is no. You neglect the goodness and salvation of Jesus when you go back to your former ways, your former patterns of life, and you forget the goodness of Jesus. And that's why verse 16 reminds us, he says, then don't neglect to do good to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, following that path is what pleases God. Okay, let's go to this next section of Scripture. It says He creates accountability communities, communities of accountability. And this is what He says in verses 17 and 19. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, I'm not going to get authoritative here, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to become a dictator. Our board isn't going to become dictators. But this is the language. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no what? No advantage, no profit to you. And he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And so what's, what's the major premise here? Um, God, in a relationship with Jesus, has established these beautiful communities of Jesus followers. And these communities of Jesus followers, what do we call? Yeah, I'm trying to set you guys really easy up. I know everyone's a little tired this morning. That's okay. We call them churches, right? We, we call them local gatherings, those local assemblies of Jesus followers who are apprentices of Jesus trying to figure out what life of Jesus truly means and to work that out in the daily expressions of everyday life. Now, to actually do that, to become apprentices of Jesus, to live the way of Jesus, is not an easy thing to do, is it? And so what do we need? We need accountability. We need support structures. We need systems in place to encourage and to admonish and to support one another. And so we call these accountability communities churches the people of God. And in these churches, we have leadership structures. Now, we as a Baptist church, one of the things we believe in what's called congregational leadership, which means that we believe each and every Christian is a priest, a priest of God, which means we function in the same authoritative plane before God, and yet we appoint leaders in the Bible, they're called elders or deacons. The, the more literal language is servants or overseers, and that's the language that's used here, overseers and leaders. We appoint these people to hold us accountable 
and to push us forward into following Jesus. And so it's saying here, if, if there's these leaders in the church that are there for your spiritual growth and your spiritual vitality and your spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation, then it's not probably the best thing to be ignoring them. It's probably not going to be the best thing for you to move forward spiritually and grow in the way of Jesus if you're completely anti-authoritative in your life. And what's, what's interesting in our culture, especially in Alberta, I've noticed a lot more than British Columbia, we are extremely anti-authoritative, aren't we? Right? We push back against all authority in our lives. And we say, I'm the boss, I rule my life, I do what I want to do, no one can tell me anything else, right? But on the other hand, the Scriptures call us to something different. It says, no, there's actually systems of accountability, there's systems of, of leadership that will actually benefit you in life, that will actually help you grow in life. And that's why it says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. And guess what? Those leaders have to do what before God? They have to give an, an account. In other words, the, the leaders of the church are accountable before God for how they lead you spiritually. That's a massive responsibility, isn't it? And so I find this hilarious because I'm a pastor, but it says, let them do this with what? And we got your text open with joy. And not with groaning. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. Now, now, members of the board, maybe put up your hand if you've served on the board before. <laughs> Has there been seasons where we've had to do a little bit of groaning? <laughs> right? There is. But when there's joy, when, when people are excited to grow in the faith, when there's humility in the church, when there's excitement to see what God has for us, that's when there's a deep joy in the church, right? Especially among leadership is when we see God's purposes and plans moving forward. And it says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, because if, if our leadership teams are, are groaning and overwhelmed and always dealing with criticism and complaints, is that going to help us lead very well? No. And so it's going to be no advantage to the church as well. It's going to be no advantage to you. And so Jesus is, is beautiful because he set up these systems of accountability for us to grow and mature and develop in our faith together as the people of God. And then it reminds of the congregation's responsibility to the leaders as well. It says, pray for us. Pray for us. Why? Because we desire to act honorably in all things. We desire that restoration would happen among the people of God. And so this is the, the beautiful aspect of what it means to be part of the church. Now, what does this mean in a very practical level then in light of this? It means, first of all, be a person of humility. Be a person of humility. Be teachable. Understand that the, the leaders want to serve you and to love you. Um, that's why we call ourselves a, a board leadership, but we function primarily as elders and deacons, and we put these two concepts together because a deacon literally means what? Does anyone know? Servant, right? And an elder means literally an overseer. And so we want to be servant leaders, right? 
We want to be leaders that serve you and love you, not leaders that hoard authority and power over you because we were just warned that we should never pursue power. And so pray to that extent. Pray for these things. Now, for closing, again, I told you there's so much in this passage to work through, but we're going we're gonna to close with this statement. Because here's a really powerful one in the benediction, and, and Melissa already brought up part of this. Because when we read this last section of Scripture, there's so much depth here. And it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing to His sight through Jesus Christ to Him to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And that's really how the letter ends. And it's, it's beautiful because when we look at this passage, we realize that when we follow Jesus and, and we live the way of Jesus, He gives us this peace in our life. The Jewish writers called this shalom, this wholeness of restoration of all relationships. He gives us this new life. That's what we're going to be celebrating in baptism today. He gives us this guidance. He gives us a protection. He gives us forgiveness from our sins. He gives us a partnership in His mission. He gives us power to accomplish His mission. There's so much in these verses that remind us of what God has done for us. And, and so I just want to, want to close basically by praying this over you. And I want to pray this benediction over you. Uh, because I think it's crucial for us to really allow to mesh into our minds and our brains of what has been accomplished in Christ. So I'm going to invite you just to, to bow your heads. And we're going to pray this scripture as the writer of Hebrews climaxes his letter. Now may the God of peace Father, we thank you that you are a God of peace. We thank you that you are a God of shalom and you welcome us into shalom. We thank you that you have brought this beautiful wholeness and restoration of our lives. And so as we look at you as the God of peace, I pray that you, we would experience your peace the peace which surpasses all understanding. And it says, You are the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. We have the beautiful hope of resurrection. We have the beautiful hope of life after death. We have the beautiful hope that because you were raised from the dead, proving to be God, that we have the hope of eternal life with you. We thank you that death no longer has sting in our life, but we find hope in the resurrection of Jesus. It says, Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd and we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil for you are with us as our shepherd. 
and your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And Lord, as we think of we as, as humans have so often went astray, we've often pursued so many things on other paths, especially as this passage brings out of, of money and sex and power and control, thinking these things will satisfy us, thinking these things will fulfill us, thinking these things will give us security. But Lord, our security can only come from knowing you as our shepherd as the one who guides us and instructs us into wisdom. And Lord, we worship you as the shepherd who died for us, the lamb who was slain, the blood that brought the eternal covenant. Lord, the, the covenant that was established between you, our creator, and us as your people. The covenant where you have partnered with us in, in mission to bring renewal and reconciliation and redemption to this world. We pray that we would be faithful in it. And in this mission, you don't just call us and partner with us, but verse 21 says, you equip us. And you equip us with everything good that we may do your will working in us. And Lord, we know that you have equipped us with the power of your Holy Spirit. You have equipped us to be a people who not just long to do what is good, but actually now have the power because of you living within us to accomplish what is good. And so we pray that we as your people, that goodness would flow from us, that your goodness be working through our lives and bringing transformation to the world around us, and bringing good that overcomes evil and injustice, and bringing good that brings beauty into this world, we pray. And we pray that all these things working in us would be pleasing to your sight, through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. And Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified among us, that as people see us, as Lord, you would be magnified through our lives. That your glory and your goodness and your salvation would seep from us. That your worth and value and significance would flow from our actions. Lord, so often we realize that the only Bible most people around us are going to read is our lives. We have to ask ourselves, well, what is the story that is going to be told? Is it a story of your glory or is it a story of our striving for our own? And so we pray that we be a church where you are glorified and where you are known and where you are revered for everything that you are due. We're here today because we love you, Jesus, and we desire for you to be glorified among us. We pray this in your name. Amen.